Welcome to Innovations in Education. I'm your host, David Adams, CEO of the Urban Assembly. And on this show, we bring guests every single episode who have made things work in public education. This show is about the innovators. This show is about the folks who are solving problems. This show is about making things work in education. Now, there's a lot of shows out there talking about what's wrong in the education systems, and those are great shows. There's some shows talking about what we're not doing well, and there's a lot to learn from those, but that's not this show. This show is going to be featuring educators who are making things work for young people and improving public education. I'm joined today by Dr. Annette Thompson. Dr. Thompson is the former principal of the Jim Rollins School of Innovation. You previously led the George Elementary School to be a high-performing school, regardless of its Title I designation and high ELL population. Then you helped design and open the new Rollins School of Innovation, training the staff and the beliefs to have transformational change. You provided support as teachers were able to try innovative strategies like trust badges, learning profiles, learning powers, flexible learning spaces, and a host of other strategies that promote student and teacher agency. You're currently working on an ebook called Agency by Design Playbook, a resource with vignettes and other supports for teachers and administrators in their field. Dr. Thompson, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Went through your bio, and uh, we've talked about George Elementary to the Jim Rollins School of Innovation. Now, we know this show is called Innovation in Education. Tell me a little bit about your educational story and how you became a principal of a school that focused only on innovation. Being an educator for 37 years, I got to try a lot of innovative things, and I had a lot of leaders who inspired me in my career. In 2017, I got the opportunity to go to Auckland, New Zealand with a team of educators from Northwest Arkansas, and our charge was to learn about innovative teaching and learning practices and bring them back to the Northwest Arkansas region. It was funded by the Walmart Family Foundation. And it was led by the Office of Innovation for Education. So that started that journey. And so I implemented a lot of strategies alongside with teachers at George Elementary School. Then the opportunity came to open a school of innovation and hire teachers and really just jump out there and just give it a go. And that was just exciting. And I'm so thankful for our school board and our superintendent, Dr. Jared Cleveland, who hired me for that position, and that's how I ended up there. So it was a great honor to open that school in the name of my greatest mentor, Dr. Jim D. Rollins, who served our Springdale School District for 38 years. Well, let's take a second to come back to this story. So you're in Northwest okay. Arkansas. You've come back from New Zealand. What problem were you guys trying to solve with the School of Innovation? How did that solve the problem in terms of what you guys were thinking about? I think what we learned most was how to shift the culture to really help the students understand themselves as learners and help the teachers become facilitators of learning so that students truly own their learning. It wasn't just designing lessons that put students at the center. It was putting the students at the center and saying, here you go, let's go at this together and really teaching them to learn how to learn and mm -hmm. teaching them how to take risks and understand that that when they fail at something, that's an opportunity to learn. I saw so many things that I could not unsee once we toured those schools. Mm -hmm. And I was super excited to come back and see what we could do in Northwest Arkansas. So let's talk about this inspiration visions, because it sounds like this has really motivated your sense of innovation 
What was so different about New Zealand? Why New Zealand? Why not like Singapore or like California? What are some things that were so inspirational that got this innovation school started? Well, the Walmart Family Foundation chose Auckland because of the student population. It was very similar to Northwest Arkansas, and they saw the high achievement of learners. And I think what I saw was, one, a focus on the whole child, health and mental health, physical health, and academic health. And that was the core of their culture. And what I saw also was students who truly owned their learning. They were not afraid to take risks. And they were doing some amazing work as learners. And I thought, wow, that's, if we're willing to take a risk and shift, then what could we do for our students? And that was the key. That was what was so powerful coming back. And then we did U.S. learning journeys all over the United States after that as a team. We stayed together kind of like a collaborative team of 20 to help each other learn. And we went all over the U.S. And we found that. All throughout the U.S. too, we just added to the things that we were doing in Northwest Arkansas and Springdale, and that made it even more powerful for students. Okay, so you go out to New Zealand and you see this focus on the whole child that's very learner-centered, and you tour these spaces all across the country, and then you come in and instead of saying, how might I implement this in the school that I have, you guys come to a conclusion that we're going to start a whole new school. And we're going to start on these principles that you saw. What were some of the principles that inspired you to start a whole new school? And why did you think about a new school versus working through implementing the changes in schools that you were already leading? Actually, doing this work at Georgia Elementary School, the achievement and growth that we saw, even during COVID, that school did not miss a beat. And so that was so powerful to see being able to go and try it at a school that had a different learning environment where it was actually open. The teens could see each other. The teachers could see each other. The children could see each other. And students could move between learning zones. And that can happen at any school. It just made it easier at this new school because we designed the school to fit the function of our vision. So it sounds like There are some times that the physical space and the learning kind of space intersect and interact to create optimal learning outcomes for young people. And while you could move some of the kind of pedagogical strategies in a typical school, some of that physical space made a difference. It did because learning wasn't secret. Everybody could see everyone else learning and we had to depend on each other to learn how to learn better. Like teachers really trusted each other. I would say it started with trust. And to build trust with each other and to know that I've supported them. And as they tried these new strategies, because they were like, what if I don't, my students don't achieve as well and I'm doing these different things. And that's scary for a teacher and for them to know, I've got you, you know, let's do this. This is better for children. And the excitement in the children, once you see how excited the children are about owning their learning, you can't turn back. You just keep going forward and figuring it out together. So some of the main things I think would be helping students to become self-aware yeah, as a learner, but also in their behaviors as well, their learning behaviors, the idea that I can fail at things, I can make mistakes. And it's not bad if I make mistakes. How do we learn mistakes? Like openly share our mistakes of the week. Like I got on the intercom or we did a morning Zoom in the mornings with the teachers and students and I would get on the intercom or on the video and say, Oh, you wouldn't believe the mistake of the week I made this week. And so it made it safe. Yeah. 
created a safe environment for students to learn and make mistakes. Look, I just wrote that down, mistakes of the week. I'm going to use that at the UA and think about how I can elevate the mistakes because I I have a lot to choose from. So I don't know about you. It's not going to be a hard thing uh, to work on and make a lot of mistakes. Some of the things that resonated with me here is this notion of trust, this notion of a sense that it's okay to struggle, to make mistakes, self-awareness, learning behaviors, some of these more fundamental kind of attributes of what allows students to grow academically and social emotionally in order to be successful. That's exactly it. That's the foundation of the school of innovation. Being innovative is just trying to do things differently and don't do school the way we've always done school mm-hmm. and really to be coaches or facilitators. But that comes with some risk. And it's a little bit scary if teachers have always done things the other way. So being able to know that they've got colleagues to help them and it's not a competition. It's about everybody helping everyone else get better at at the learning and the work of helping children achieve. And once you start to see children achieve Mm -hmm. as people and in their confidence, that just, it just grows tenfold because children start to help children. Yeah. It's just becomes this beautiful little atmosphere. The notion of competition versus cooperation is really resonant with me because, in fact, when children achieve, our communities are better. Our society is stronger. Our schools are more effective. Our job really is not to be like, well, this person's number one, this person's number 15, but to put all of our kids in a position to contribute to society. And when you said it's about cooperation, learning is not a secret right? It's like, oh, I made a mistake. Hey, come here. Look at how we did this. That's a lot more actually, it's closer to what we do in real life, right? Like if I'm a teacher, and this happens sometimes in New York because the way that our schools are organized, a school on one floor may say to a school on another, I've got this really great math strategy, but I don't want to share it because I want to make sure students come to my school. And I remember having this conversation. I'm like, what kind of sense does that make, right? Like I can help students, but I'm going to keep it to myself because I don't want to share high quality math outcomes with the school below because I want to compete for kids. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It is because when you cooperate, you achieve way more than you ever could before. And when children learn to cooperate and support each other, that's powerful too. And like at a school of innovation, it starts in different levels, but students learn to track their own learning. Yeah. And understand if it's too hard, if it's too easy, if they have a challenge, they know who to go to to get help. Yeah. And it's always the teacher. It's It could be here who understood it and struggled before them. Yeah. So children actually track their progress and show mastery. Once they show mastery of a standard, then they can move up to the next level. But they have to show not just mastery. They have to show a deep understanding of that standard so that they could teach it to someone else. Like yeah. if they understand it to the level that they can teach it to someone else, then they're ready to move to that next level. And you see the students getting stronger at understanding themselves and moving through the, those standards and becoming such deep thinkers. Yeah. And you see teachers do it too. Yeah. That's when it's powerful. When you have a student in one classroom that looks over and says, someone's over there is having a little trouble with three-digit, you know, multiplication or problem solving. I figured that one out. You mind if I go help? And it's like, go for it. That's the other piece is that we teach students about their second learning opportunity times during the day. We structure that. Yeah, so yeah. students can take that time to learn something to a deeper level, or they can take that time to teach a peer. And it is all about networking and collaboration. Mm-hmm. And they 
to have those skills when they go out into the world. They sure do. So you've hit one of my favorite topics, and that's productive struggle. And I want to get a sense of how, how you create an environment of both trust and support that helps students move through that productive struggle and that zone of proximal development in ways that they don't lose it, but they also are applying rigor to the task at, at hand. Because I think you had mentioned this before. I've watched a lot of classrooms where teachers really struggle to watch their students struggle. Like at the first instance, they jump in and they're like, don't you worry, here's the lifeboat. Here's your life vest. Here's a rope. Everything is pulling you out that water. So tell me a little bit about how you've worked with that and, and some things that you've learned. We showed a lot of videos. We used the work of James Nottingham mm-hmm. and the Learning Pit. And we used that talk. Leap into the Learning Pit, yes. You didn't have to go into that pit. And yeah. so when students struggle or throw a fit, like, I can't get, I get it. It's so hard as a teacher. You want to save them and you want to say, oh, I'll get it. I'll help you with every bit. But if you do that as the teacher, you're not teaching them how to stand for themselves and really struggle a little bit, not too much. The teacher has to know just when to come in and help and throw them a little bit of help and just when to pull back. And that takes practice. And the teachers have to become self-aware of, am I rescuing too fast? That's right. Am I allowing them to think? Because if I'm jumping in too fast, I'm not allowing them to think about the task or think about their struggle. And we share our own productive struggles. So kids will talk to each other going, it's okay. You're just in the learning pit. You, you'll get there, you know, and, and they encourage each other. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a lot of talk, a lot of talk and a lot of examples of productive struggle. And we'll take pictures and I'll go, I would go out in the building and I would video kids and say, hey, what was your productive struggle this week? What did you do? How did you get out of the learning pit? And they share their story. Yeah. And students share stories, others share stories, and it resonates with the children. And we share our productive struggles, too, as teachers. We have to teach our children that we don't know all the answers, but we will be there as their guide to help them learn and to research ourselves. You keep saying time and time again, this idea of modeling mistakes of the week, the productive struggles that we go through, videotapes that help normalize what a learning process is, right? And I just, I wanted to really elevate that because I just feel like, you know, when I talk to young kids, I talk to my two sons, Elijah and Isaiah, there's just this weird thing that most kids think that they're the only ones who've ever done this thing, who've ever struggled in like three-digit multiplication or, and you keep just talking about this idea of using language to show that we all go through these challenges and it's part of the learning process. Exactly. That was one of my biggest takeaways coming back from New Zealand because I saw that we, or me as an educator, I expected students to know it. I just taught it it, like being self-aware, being determined or having grit. I just said, okay, have grit. This is what it means. But we never showed them what it was and how it feels and how you work through that. How do you create that environment? We just expected them to do it without showing them how helping them understand the how. So that's the piece is we just have, we have morning meetings, we teach it, we show them what it looks like, we celebrate it, we just embed it in everything we do. That's the piece. When you gave the example of the student who looked at the other student and said, ah, you're going through the learning pit, right? Like, I resonate with you. I'm in a relationship with you and that language. I just want to elevate one more time how concepts and language is attached to concepts. And that when we teach language and then model the concepts, then students are like, this thing is that thing we talked about. And right. that 
mystifies it a little bit, you know? Let's talk a little bit about George Elementary School. One of the things that you talked about here is that through the pandemic, you were leading the school. It's got Title I designation, high ELL population. What is it about George Elementary School that puts you in a position to lead the new school of innovation that you developed? What were some outcomes that you were really proud of? What were some processes that you used? What are some learnings that you took from that example that helped you to step into your next position? Well, first of all, I have to just give a big shout out to the teachers and staff there, our superintendent and all who helped us implement the change. Even taking out doors and moving in sliding glass doors so we could see each other teach, they did all those things to make it possible. Mm -hmm. I would say it was throughout the pandemic, it was the teachers that were willing to take a risk. We just really didn't know how to do this thing that we saw, all this stuff we saw in New Zealand, but the teachers were willing. Yeah. And we got this. Let's try this out. So it was the power of the teachers. It was that collective efficacy, I guess. And so there, even through the pandemic, we just kept implementing that culture piece of everything we've been talking about. So by the time I left George Elementary, I would have to go back and look at the names of the awards. But I think I counted there were five different state awards that George Elementary received that year coming out of COVID. It was a beating the odds school in literacy and math and overall in the state and in the region. It was just high, high growth coming out of the pandemic. And the only thing that we did differently throughout that before the pandemic, because it was 2017 when we came back, and then, of course, COVID in 2020, the only thing we implemented differently was the culture piece. And that it was a great school to start. I'm not saying that it really was, but added that culture piece of teaching children how to own their learning mm-hmm. and to trust and, and take risks and the teachers as well. Yeah, taking risks during COVID, you know, really trying to try something different. So it was during that time that we just kept implementing building the culture of learning and learning how to learn. And our school soared high achievement. There was another school that did the same exact thing. And I have to give a shout out to Shelly Pogue at John Tyson Elementary. You know Shelly, I think you've heard of her. I do. She's still implementing the same strategies and her school as well had high achievement and high growth during COVID. So it was about the people in the relationships and the trust and the networking. But do you make that sound like it's like a, a book that we can just open up and it's a recipe? Obviously, I just got trust from the adults and they took risks and that that risk translated to students. I've been trying to do that and educators have been trying to do that for tens and tens of years. Walk me through a little bit more specifically, like what is the adult change process here? Risk is not easy. It doesn't come easy to folks. It feels uncomfortable. We all want to change in education. Help me to help our listeners think a little bit more specifically about that. What did you put in place for adults to build that culture of trust? I would say it was a lot of conversation. Mm. And me walking the walk with them, like Mm -hmm. going to the classrooms. I, I don't have a pencil and marker. I'm not evaluating you. Let me come in and see what's happening as you're trying to implement that. And then let's have a conversation about what's working for you and your team and what's not. And then let's reflect on it, gather some data and say, let's try something new together. So it's not scary, you know, if you're doing it together. So I would say it was a lot of conversation and teachers would come and say, hey, I want to try this and this. And my team member wants to try it too. I said, okay, give it a go. Well, how can I support you? How can I support you? And I just think it was just being right there in the moment with them as they struggled and knowing that I'm not going to come in and evaluate them and, you know, give them a low rating or whatever. Sometimes if the lesson wasn't going well, you know how we have to do evaluations and things, which are helpful yeah. because it provides feedback. I just figured out a way to give feedback in a different way. 
by, I would say, maybe cognitive coaching, helping them to figure out what was working and what wasn't working. And then openly sharing the data and achievement and saying, this team figured something out and look at the growth in the students. Let's figure this out. How could this work for your grade level? What would you need to change for your grade level or team? Or third grade, you figured this out. How could you help fourth grade? And then providing the structures and time for the teachers to get together and talk. Yeah. So just trying to figure that piece out. I just want to elevate some of these pieces, right? One of the things you said is feedback matters, but feedback and accountability are not the same thing. And I heard you say, figure out ways to get feedback to teachers and not necessarily attach that directly to accountability to build trust. I heard you talk about bright spots, right? Like pay attention to where things are working. And then going back to your cooperation versus competition space, we're all in this together. One kid who does well as a kid who goes out to our society, we don't need to keep it a secret in terms of how folks solve that problem. Those are things that are really important, the feedback. And also one more thing here is partnership and growth, right? You talked about being there, being in classrooms, being in relationship. It almost sounds like you were trying to lead your staff through the same productive struggle approach that you expected staff to lead your students through. Exactly. <laughs> and we called it that too. <laughs> it's, I don't know how to do this either. I'm just your leader, but I'm willing to take a risk if you are. How about it? <laughs> so tell me about what kind of stories, what kind of narratives did you uplift during this time to help your teachers start to see the impact of their outcomes, right? Because everything from your mistakes of the week to the learning is visible create narratives about what you expect in your school. It creates a culture about what's valued. So what are some things that you kind of made stories around that helped your staff to be like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, this Thompson, she's, she's leading us to a good place. It had to be the students. Mm -hmm. And it and had to be the parents' stories. <laughs> As parents would talk with me about what they needed or wanted for their children and their hopes and dreams for their children, being able to say, okay, so... What can we do to support your child in all of these areas? And so keeping track of the students and their achievement, and it's not just academic achievement. It was also achievement in their confidence or in their understanding of self-control so that they can learn, understanding how to manage their emotions. It, it's just every time we saw something to celebrate, we celebrated a lot of celebration and celebrations of the teachers. But teachers, once they see, when they start to see their students really, truly grow and achieve and the students get excited themselves, it changes you as a person. You just have this overwhelming joy of, wow, we just made a difference in the life of that child and that child's family. And when you share those stories over and over and over, it just creates this, I would say, synergy for what we can do for our community and our world. So I would say what pieced it all together, the children sold it. And seeing children who maybe who had struggled before and had not been successful and become successful in different ways and see that every student is different and every student needs something different and that we're willing to provide that because they matter. Mm -hmm. Our kids matter and their lives matter. And I've been at this long enough, you know, for 37 years, I've seen the full cycle of students who I've taught who became parents. And now I had their grandchildren <laughs> oh. or I had my students' children 
at yeah. school and to see how life changed for them. Yeah. Sharing that story is what it's all about. No, I'm so inspired by that. I think sometimes we beat ourselves up a lot in education. We kind of like throw the clasp on our back and the importance of really just elevating what works and how it works. And what you said to me that was so inspiring is I think there's been a little bit of a notion and we've moved away, but accountability was a driver for outcomes. And what I hear from you, it's that teachers will hold themselves to accountability if they have faith in the processes that they're using and have support to execute on them. We're not afraid of accountability at all. Accountability helps us learn what we need to do differently. Mm -hmm. The real outcome is the success of children. Yeah. So let's get back into this idea of, of growth. Let's get back into this idea of transformational change. And it sounds like from the story that we've learned and, and from what I've learned about you, you've had tremendous growth as an educator. And as you talked about with mistakes, I'm really curious about some of the challenges that you've had in this process and what we can learn from the ways that you've navigated those challenges in, in larger educational space. So thinking about your career and, and the work that you've done in, in the spaces you've had, like what have been the challenges in, in implementing this change and have you overcome them? I think the biggest challenge is fear. Yeah. Fear keeps someone from trying new things. And they worry that our school is going to be rated an F or a D in the papers and things like that. That's a fear. But those accountability measures like that have been around forever and they come and go. But what doesn't change is our success for our children. So I would say struggles we had would be like, how do we fix the schedule so that we can implement second learning opportunity time? Oh, man, we've got, well, we just opened another kindergarten. Our schedule did work, but now it doesn't. We've got to figure that out. Yeah. How do we help everyone as we employ new staff members? How do we help them understand where we've been when we're three years in? What's our routine for growing everyone along the way? Mm -hmm. How do we help it? How do we help uh, when we have a week off for snow and we've just lost a lot of learning opportunities that we thought we had? All those little pieces and things. Schedule would be probably the hardest thing, but also how do we collaborate and network effectively? That was a struggle. That was a struggle. And how do we share? How do we share? How do we openly share and not worry that somebody's going to think I'm not a good teacher? Mm -hmm. Or somebody's going to think I'm not a good principal because I'm trying this stuff and, and my school isn't achieving like it did. That's a fear. Yeah. The biggest thing was trying to overcome fear. And that goes back to just joining up together and just looking at the research of teacher collective efficacy and knowing that if I have faith and others have done it before me, then I'm going to try to. Yeah. So I hope that's answering what you want because looking back on six or seven years back, I'm like, hmm, what was it? Well, it, it was a lot of, ooh, that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that schedule, we thought that schedule to create Passion Project and Genius Hour time was going to work, but it really flopped. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, out of the flop, what can we, what part was good? Was there anything good out of the flop in our schedule that we tried to work out? And then, if teachers build it, they own it. And then our parents, too, giving us feedback on what works for them as parents and what didn't work. And so bringing in the parents and the community members and having students sit on your council of innovation and students tell you what they like and don't like. Mm -hmm. That takes some risk, too, to say, OK, yeah. how did the lesson work for you? Did you like it or were you bored? I was bored. OK, so what do we need to do differently? Yeah. And so being vulnerable, we had to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I hear that. 
I hear that. There's a couple of things that pop out to me. I, I really appreciate this in that because I feel like sometimes we get caught up in lofty ideas in education. And how do we make the schedule work is a problem set. Like it's like, it is like the most important thing because everything revolves around our schedule, right? And I think sometimes we get up in these like really big ideas and like you talked about mastery grading, like how can we ensure that the students have the right amount of feedback to improve on their practice in the schedule that we've organized and marking like it's like practical thing that you talk about and that we think about as well. The question of teacher turnover and, and bringing new folks into the staff, because when you started a new project, that's where the energy is at. Right. And that's where all the energy is kind of focused. Right. It's like the big bang of education. But then new people come in and you're like, oh, I just don't have the same energy that I had like three years ago when we organized this to bring people into the space. But you have to. So I just I, I'm really resonant with some of these the things that you guys worked on. All right. Now that we have that space, I want to think a little bit about lessons learned for leaders. I want to talk about who's inspired you. I want to talk about how you've inspired others and successes and challenges you'd like to share. I, I recognize that the Jim Rollins School of Education is named after somebody very important to you. So would you tell me a little bit about who Jim Rollins was, why he inspired you, and some lessons of leadership? Dr. Jim Rollins hired me. I had done my internship in Springdale and then moved away to Amarillo, Texas for three years. And then when I came back, I got a job in Springdale and Dr. Rollins was our superintendent. And so he... I mean, I started, I was like three years in when I started. And so I was in the Springdale School District for 34 years. And he was our superintendent for 38 years. That's a long term, you know. And so he always led with a passion for being different and trying to figure out what worked for children. And it was all about the students. He just really, he did such amazing work that I wanted to do the things that he was doing. I didn't want to disappoint him. Oh, he hired me. I've got to figure this out. I just can't sit here and just teach every day and not learn. And during the time when he led, our school district did grow by about a thousand students a year for a while. And so he led us through that change. And so he inspired me. He would just say, okay, kiddo, you're going to, he always called me, he calls every, he called everybody kiddo, but he'd say, okay, kiddo, when are you getting that doctorate? I'm like, okay. Soon. Yeah, I'll, I'll get on this. <laughs> so he inspired me to go on and yeah. to continue to learn and to look at challenges and try to help figure out how to make learning better for children. Yeah. It was an honor to open his school. So tell me about your leadership lessons. It's going to be a little awkward because I think it's easier to talk about who's inspired us than who we want to inspire and how we wish to kind of leave our legacy. So tell me a little bit about what you see your leadership journey to have been and who you want to inspire and the legacy you want to leave in terms of education. Wow, that's a that's a deep question. It's harder to talk about yourself. It is hard um, to talk about yourself. I appreciate it. Another leader that supported me was Linda Childers Knapp, and she was my principal at Smith Elementary when I was in Springdale. And she encouraged me to go be a principal. I was going to be a teacher forever. I love teaching. I love curriculum instruction. I love working with kids. She encouraged me to be a principal, and at first I did it, but I really didn't feel like I knew how to be a principal. I really didn't, in fact. Nobody knows how to do anything, at least three and, years. And you're talking about like mistakes in leadership. I would say learning how to coach teachers and learning how to build that trust to support them. Yeah. And still manage all the other tasks that a principal has. So I would say 
biggest thing would be I wanted to be like Linda in that she encouraged a lot of principals in our district. I think there were like seven of us that went on to be principals. And I wanted to inspire others to go on and follow their dreams, whether it go on to be principals or go on to be curriculum and instruction leads, but do things to continue to support teaching and learning. And so as a principal, trying to find the people that I talked to a lot of people and teachers and I think, why don't you try that? Go, you want to be a reading specialist? Hmm, here's what it takes. Oh, you'd love to have ESL certification. Here's what you can do. And just really trying to find what the teachers were passionate about and what their interests were and then leading them in those directions and then also being there to catch them when they, when they made mistakes. Yeah. Um, hey, okay, so that you're facilitating a team of teachers and that didn't go well and everybody may have gotten angry or upset. So what worked with it? What didn't work with it? How can I help support that? So I would say that was my biggest learning curve as a principal, as a new principal, helping teachers and building that trust to yeah. know that I wasn't out to get them. I was just had high expectations for myself and for in school. Well, before we get to the legacy question, I want to stick with this idea of coaching and developing because I think leaders, let me speak for myself, I always struggle to balance urgency with patience. Like I, I really want to get this done and I really want to get it done now. And I also recognize that I need to bring people along and I need to be sensitive to their needs and, and really pay attention to their learning curve. And I don't always saw that well. Sometimes I'm just like, who cares? Let's go. And sometimes I'm like, all right, let me listen to all your problems. And, and we don't make the progress. And so I'd love to see your sense of like that balance and what you've learned and what you can offer others. That's the number one thing that I struggled with too as a principal is like urgency. Like we've got to get this done, you know? And so these results, we got to get these results. So definitely looking at the data, teaching children and teachers how to analyze the data. And then it may hurt, but being honest with mm -hmm. what's and what the data is showing, what it's not. So if the data is not showing that our children are growing or are achieving, then we've got to face that. And as hard as it is, it's a gut punch. It is a gut punch sometimes, but my gut hurts just like yours. But not being willing to take less than our best. So yes, this isn't working. We've looked at the data. How can we get better? And we don't have much time. We're going to have to pump it up, jump it up, get, let's get moving. And so I would say, the teachers would say that I was just a data queen. Like I was all over that data all the time, ripping it apart, what's working, what's not, things like that. But being honest, and sometimes it was brutally honest. Yeah. Sometimes it wasn't pretty. The growth needed to be better. And so not hiding from it, like yeah. saying it is what it is, but we can make it better. Let's get at it. Yeah. The answer's in the room. And if it's not, we'll find it. So, yeah. you know, let, let's trust everybody to find the answer. But if we're not there yet, then who, who is and who can we help? What colleagues can help us? There's language that you use there, what's working, what's not, you know, and, and, and so I have a strategic priorities at the UA and, and the first strategic priority is make things work. And it's, it's this notion of problem solving. It's not you're a bad person, you're a terrible teacher. It's what's working and, and what, what's not. And when I hear that framing, I think it helps us to think about the urgency of problem solving balancing that against this notion of there is something that will work. And what you said is like, I assume either another teacher or another school has made this thing work. And let's just figure out how to get that because we want our students to be successful. Correct. Now, Annette, I understand that you have a new book coming out. We talked a little bit about it in the introduction, but I'm sure my audience would like to learn a little bit more. What can you tell me about your book? Well, I'm working with a group of colleagues with Derek Winmouth out of Future Makers New Zealand. George Edwards from the New England Association of Schools and Colleges, and Dr. Marsha Jones, who was our former assistant superintendent in Springdale. And they 
had written Agency by Design previously, and then this is the Agency by Design playbook, and that's how to build student agency. First of all, it gives you the background philosophy behind innovation and building agency, and then it gives you the characteristics that if the teachers do these things, these are the steps, different things that teachers can do, then the outcome will be it, you will see it in the students, and here's how you will see it in the mm -hmm. students. So an outcome for a student would be competencies for life, or it would be collaboration. And then you'll see these behaviors in students develop. So it will be free. It will come out in October. And the Aurora Institute will be publicizing, doing all the PR for us. But I love that it's free. It, people can go and they can download any piece of this playbook. And it's just like a design to help people shift to helping students truly own their learning. It will be on the Aurora Institute's website. They said in October, but I'll also put it, a link to it on my website, which is Inquire Innovation. And if you Googled Agency by Design Playbook, they'll find it. <laughs> let's talk about your legacy. And let's talk about what you have left to public education, what you feel proud of. What's your innovation that you're most proud of? I would say I'm very proud of coaching and mentoring teachers to go on and be principals themselves. I've had several also teachers being able to stand up and be leaders and continue to build that cycle of teachers coaching other teachers now. So I can look back and I can see that cycle. I'm very proud of that. I would say the innovation I'm the most proud of is taking a risk and opening a school with other people, of course, the help of many people, but being able to open the Dr. Jim D. Rollins Elementary School of Innovation, that would be what I'm most proud of. But within that, looking at the children that I've been a part of their lives for, for many years, and looking at them now where they are as adults, you just can't, I don't know how to describe that in words. When you know that you have had a part in helping somebody else have a life-changing experience and be able to be who they are today because of you were part of their life at some point to support them along the way when the times were tough. That, I would say, would be my legacy is the families and children that I was a part of for so many years. That I'll never forget. I'll remember that forever. That's why we education, isn't it? This, we're, we're people people. <laughs> that is why I get into education. I think the idea that what we contribute creates the fabric of society, which is people. What we contribute are young people who become fathers and mothers and, and dentists and then doctors and teachers. And each of them had a person who said, here's where you're struggling and here's where you're great and was able to hopefully help enhance their strengths and overcome their challenges. You know, I, I agree. I think that's an amazing legacy that you've left and you get to kind of hang out with it. Like every day, you know? I do. Yes. And I'm continuing that work just in innovation and mm -hmm. coaching and mentoring in the consulting world, but just being part of it because it's fun. Yeah. And I don't want to give that up yet. I want to still be a part of it. Well, Annette, we talked about mistakes of the week. We talked about your journey in terms of how you became to be the principal of the Jim Rollins School. We talked about your work around making sure that students are at the center of learning. The relationship between physical space and learning outcomes, the relationship between self-awareness, self-control, and students being able to own their outcomes in terms of learning. You talked about second learning opportunities, how we embrace 
new stuff in schools. He talked about the importance of trust, modeling from up and down the chain. And then lastly, you talked about your legacy and the power of motivating and elevating teachers to be the best versions of themselves. We're very, very, very glad to have had you on our show today. Very pleased to have learned a little bit about how you've come to help young people find themselves as learners. And I look forward to making sure that this podcast gets shared broad and, and wide so other educators can be inspired by your story as well. Thank you. And before we go, I do want to make sure that you know that I read a lot. And so the idea of mistake of the week, I picked that up somewhere. It's not my own verbiage. <laughs> May have been through like Guy Claxton's work, but I, I read a lot and I study and I'm always going to continue to be a learner. And I just appreciate your time today to be a part of your show. Well, thank you, Annette. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Innovations in Education, where we bring education leaders who have made things work in the education sector. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you can hear more great content around innovations in education. I've been your host, David Adams. Have a great day.